Those of you that have been with us all week, Thursday night we celebrated the remembrance of the Lord's Supper as we met around the table and and we talked about His broken body and His shed blood that was offered for us uh, to bring healing and also forgiveness of sin. And then Friday evening we uh, took a look again at the cross and I made the comment on Friday night that although we anticipate today as the celebration of resurrection, and all of Christendom celebrates resurrection, I mean, this is uh, of crucial importance to us, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, the great significance of it. But the work was finished on Friday. The resurrection is simply the outward proof that what Jesus did on the cross, he really did. Um, Had he not accomplished on the cross what he claimed, he could not have come out of the grave. But because he did, in fact, finish the work, and that uh, Greek word tetelestai that many of you have heard, uh, is it's a merchant term, it's a finance term, it means the debt is paid, the deed is done, it's finished, it's over. And Jesus cried that on the cross as His last words, it is finished, and gave up His Spirit. And He said, no one takes my life from me, I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it again. He breathed his last and yielded his spirit because the work was done and there was no need for any further suffering. The debt had been paid and all that we have in him, uh, we have because he paid that price on Calvary's cross. It is because of the cross and because of the atonement that we can be born again, that we can have new life, that we can have a relationship with God. But when we come to today, we celebrate the proof positive, the evidence that coming out of the grave, He demonstrated the truthfulness of His declaration on the cross on Good Friday. And... I thought about, as I was meditating on the resurrection, an aspect of resurrection that I've never shared with you before. And and I know that because it never came to me this way before. And it was kind of like a, a new insight that God was giving me about resurrection. And I want to focus my attention this morning around a single word, the word Glory. Have you ever tried to define a word? And particularly a word like glory. What is glory? In fact, it's one of those words, if you say it often enough, it'll almost stop making sense. (laughs) Glory. Glory. What does it mean? And if you look at examples of glory, if you look, for example, uh, at countries that have kings and queens, and you uh, look at their uh, regalia, if you look at their 
uh, fancy dress. If you look at the, the queen's uh, dresses and, and gowns and robes, and if you look at the, the king and, and his splendor, it's really his dress that bespeaks his glory. You know, if he were dressed like one of us this morning, well, he'd get lost in the crowd. But he stands out because usually he has a bright colors, uh, perhaps a dark jacket or a red jacket, and he has the sash and he has the gold and there may be the crown and, and there are all those kinds of things that set him apart and point out his glory as the king or her glory as the queen. If you were to visit uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff of our military and you were to go into the room with them and all the generals there in their dress uh, uniforms with all of the medals and, and battle uh, armaments and all of the things that they have won in their great history as warriors... It is their dress that bespeaks their glory. It's the outward sign of what their life has stood for. And if you know uh, the military insignia and the bars and the medals and you know the signs, you can simply look at all of the ribbons and know all the campaigns and know everything that they've done. And if they have uh, won certain special medals... Uh, you can see them there as well, and you can make uh, sense out of all of that if you're uh, into the military history or if that has been a part of your tradition. And it is that dress that gives them the glory. It would be a heady thing to be in the uh, inner sanctum of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and be dressed like I am and then be overwhelmed by all of these generals in their finest uh, dress regalia because they stand out and they command respect. If they move out of the room, everyone who ranks below them uh, gives them the salute and the acknowledgement that they are of high rank and status and, and respect and standing. And they have that before them. Glory is something that is the outward manifestation of the inward reality. Did you know a light bulb has glory? A light bulb has glory. I turned my lights off in my office when I came out of there this morning, and so uh, there's just as many bulbs in there as there were when they were on. And in fact, you can see every one of those bulbs. You can look right at it. And uh, it won't hurt your eyes. And that's a light bulb. Here, here are light bulbs here. There's some in every one. But I don't recommend doing what I'm doing because uh, now I see spots. Because to a burning bulb, there's a glory. It's a radiance. It's an aura that comes from the filament and goes beyond the glass and produces its benefit. And so the glory of a light bulb is its light. 
It's radiance that fills a room. This morning we have some blinds open and we have a bit of the glory of the sun coming through the windows. And these lights help illuminate the room. But you know, if you came in here in the middle of the night and it were pitch dark and you turned on one single light, the glory of it would fill the room. Because it doesn't take much, by contrast, to fill the room. The scripture makes comment about God's glory. And among the things that we learn, particularly in the Old Testament, as God says, My glory I will not share with another. We cannot participate in the glory of God in the sense of experiencing His glory. In fact, when Moses said, I want to see your glory, God said to him, Moses, I can't let you do that, for no one can see my face and live. But you will stand here by the rock, and as I pass by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. Which, by the way, was a... um, a picture, a metaphor of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we are hidden that we might see God. But God placed him in the cleft of the rock and as he passed by him, he allowed him to see his passing because he could not directly experience the glory of God. And God says, I'm not going to share my glory with anyone God stands unique in the universe. He is uncreated. He is eternal in His person. He is infinite in His character. He is immutable, unchangeable. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is the creator, sustainer of all that is, and He is the one who has made us. And no one can share the outward manifestation of the glory of God in that sense. And when we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, He had a glory when He reigned in heaven as the Son of Eternal God. When He reigned as the second member of the Holy Trinity. From the very beginning, in beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. And then John goes on later in that first chapter, and he says, And we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the glory of which John speaks. Perhaps he had in mind a bit of the transfiguration, but... The glory of which John speaks was the daily fellowship and communion that they enjoyed with the Son of God in His humanity. Jesus Christ, the man, had a human glory. As the eternal Son of God, He had a deified glory, a godly glory. 
And when we ask ourselves the question, what is the glory of Christ? How do we explain the glory of Jesus on this earth? Because in John chapter 17, he speaks a lot about glory. And in verse 4, he says this, speaking to his father. And by the way, let me give you context for John 17 in the event that you're not aware. On the night of the Last Supper, as Jesus met with his disciples and they shared that meal together, before the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus poured out his own anguish of soul, He prayed for his disciples. And John 17 is the record of that prayer. So this is the last prayer of Jesus for his disciples of which we are aware before he was crucified. This is the last thing he asked, this 17th chapter. And as we consider this chapter, in verse 4, he says to his father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now remember I said that glory is the outward manifestation of the inward reality or presence. That in in Jesus' case, it's not medals, it's not a crown, it's not a sash, it's not uh, some special garment or accolade or recognition. But in Jesus, there was about His person a presence that people were drawn to. He was like a magnet for sinners. They they were drawn to Him. They wanted to be next to Him. Isn't it odd that the holiest one who ever walked the face of the planet had a particular compulsion and draw toward sinners to come to Him? There was something about Him that spoke to them of opportunity. The the possibility of being clean. The possibility of knowing God. The possibility of, of being different than they had been. They longed for what He had. It was the religious, arrogant leaders that had the trouble. And it often is because of pride. But sinners were drawn to him. They they wanted to be next to him. And he says, this is the way I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Jesus is speaking a little bit here in future tense, because although he has accomplished the work, there's still the cross. 
but he's going to the cross. You recall the passage that says he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He has determined to finish the course. He has determined to pay the price. And his glory is in that he always did his father's will. He always manifested the father. And if you have ever doubted if God loves you, I want you to think for a moment about how much Jesus loves you and how he demonstrated that love as he walked the face of this earth, how he demonstrated that love that was the manifestation of God's love for you. He always reflected the Father's heart. If you have seen me, he said to his disciples, you have seen the Father. For I and my Father are one. To see me is to see him. To know me is to know him. To experience me is to experience him. And there is glory in that. And so... As Jesus comes to the end of this uh, high prayer for his disciples, in verse 22 of John 17, he says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. I want you to stop and think about that a moment. Do you realize what he's saying to us? The glory, Father, that you gave me, I have given to them. Is that not remarkable? That we could enter into the glory of Jesus Christ, not Jesus, the eternal God, the Son, but Jesus The man without sin who went to the cross, who rose from the grave, who demonstrated every day of his life the will of the Father. Jesus is praying that we will experience the glory that he himself has had as a man living on this earth. The last Adam. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them. You and me. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Even as you have loved me. What was the glory of Christ? Remember back to verse 4. I have done the work that you gave me to do. How is it that we enter into that glory? By becoming one with Him and doing the work that God has given us to do. When we operate in the power of Jesus Christ and manifest His love and His grace and His mercy and proclaim His good news, we in fact 
demonstrate that same glory of obedience to the Father. People should be drawn to us. People should be curious as to what makes us tick. They should want to kind of side up to us and find out what's going on in our hearts because we're different. We behave differently. We think differently. We have a different perspective on life. We have a peace that they cannot understand. We have a joy that is His joy, unspeakable and full of glory. These things are ours because of Him. And we are brought into unity with Him. That in Jesus Christ, the world will know that the Father sent Him and that He loves us. Even as you have loved me, He says. I want the world to see my disciples and experience the glory that has been mine. You remember some of the things Jesus said before praying this prayer earlier in the evening? He says, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but He will be in you. When Jesus came into that upper room on the day of the resurrection... And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It was not possible until the cross that we could be indwelt and filled with the Spirit of God. But after the cross, he could come to his disciples and say, this one who has been with you, The same one who has been in me, but with you, can now be in you. Receive him. Take him into yourself. You are the temples of the living God. And as you go out, the works that I have done, you shall do also, and greater works than these, even because I'm going to my Father. And all the things that He has accomplished through me, He will accomplish through you. Isn't that amazing? And it's glorious. And it's not because of something we have done. Because Jesus said, For apart from me you can do nothing. If you abide in me, and I abide in you, you will bear fruit. If you go off on your own, you're not going to be very fruitful. But if you rest in me, my life will come through you in fruitfulness. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Here comes the transition. May it never be. How shall we that died to sin still live in it? And and this is so important for us. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized 
into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Friends, it's hard for us to understand. I realize that because we're living today. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross. And we never saw that cross. But by faith, God has folded us into it. And this cross upon which Jesus died, we died with him. Something happened in the cross that defeated the power of sin and defeated death. Something happened in the cross that separated us from our utter failure as human beings. And we died with Jesus Christ. We are placed there by the Father in His life and in His death. How do we understand that? Well, you can only understand it by faith. And then He says, But we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. A brand new life. Are you hungry for a change? Is anyone here this morning without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you've been listening and you've been saying, I would love to be different. I'd love to have my past wiped away. I'd love to, to experience forgiveness and cleansing. I would love that. Well, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, I was raised in a tradition that looked at that body of sin and, and, and said, that's, that's this human flesh, and when it finally dies, we'll, huh, we'll be free. We can go to heaven, and, and all will be forgiven and passed, and until that happens, so we just got to slave away under sin. But it's not talking about my physical body. It's talking about the body of sin, the weight of sin, the, the, the carnal nature, that propensity with which I was born that moves me to disobey God. It was done away in the cross. It was rendered powerless. For the one who has died in Jesus is freed from the power of sin. That's glory in itself. 
I'm no longer in bondage. I'm not in handcuffs. I don't have shackles on my feet. I'm not weighed down by the guilt of a carnal nature that is constantly at odds. Because I have been freed in Jesus Christ. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. For the death that He died, He died with reference to sin once and for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here is glory in the resurrection. Jesus came out of the grave. He walked among His disciples. He was seen by many people. He was very much alive. He said to Thomas, You're having trouble, Thomas, believing this. But I'm not a ghost. Put your fingers in the nail prints of my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side, which he bears for us for all eternity, by the way. Jesus will have scars. I think mine are going to go away in the resurrection. But Jesus has scars. And he said to Thomas, put your hand there. See that I am real. See that I am alive. See that I am as much flesh and bone as you. And so, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. In Christ Jesus, when he came out of that grave, we were raised with him. And we were raised in the resurrection power. We were raised in the resurrection glory. We walk in the power of the living Christ. We don't follow a philosophy or a religion. We don't follow the sayings of Confucius or the uh, mysticism of Buddhism or the harshness of the God of Islam. We live and have our being in the glory of the resurrected Christ and we experience His life. On a daily basis, because of our relationship with Him. And then peculiarly enough, and this is a passage that you're familiar with, but in Romans chapter 8, all of you know the verse, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. You probably all memorized that. You probably all had it quoted to you. Perhaps at the most inopportune moment when you didn't feel like that at all. I personally think however true this is, um, it's not 
the first thing that should come out of your mouth in the emergency room to someone who's suffering. A little more empathy. You can get around to the truth of this later. But when we think about this passage, I wonder, do you know why God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him? Do you know why that's a reality? Do you know why we can count on that? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Here is the reason. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. Friends, in Adam, we were all born and we all have a relationship. We're part of the human race. We're of the race of Adam. But do you realize this morning, if you've been born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the firstborn of a new race? That there's a new family born out of the sons and daughters of Adam and brought unto Him and the Father in the family of God? And we are born again into that family. It's because He's the firstborn that we can become the rest of the born. And it's because He has a destiny in mind for us that we can experience the glory of His resurrected life. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God is determined to make you look like Jesus. So I want to ask, why do we resist that? Why do we... Struggle with the idea of looking like Jesus. He wasn't odd. He wasn't weird. He didn't have effeminate features and long flowing hair halfway down his back. I don't know what he looked like, but some of the pictures make me sick. I don't want to look like that. But that's not the point. I want to be that that person who is bold, but tender. I want to be that one that the children love and the elderly listen to. I want to be the one to whom sinners are drawn and loved and accepted. And then listen to the good news of Jesus that they can be different. I want to be like that Jesus. I want to be full of wisdom and truth and understanding that comes from Him. He has determined us that we will be like Him. And whom He predestined, He called. And these whom He called, He justified. Do you see what's going on here? 
The Holy Spirit has dealt with our heart and called us unto Him. And in the calling and our acceptance of Him as Lord and Savior, we are justified. You've heard that saying that most children have learned. What does justified mean? Just as if I'd never sinned. But it means to be found before God without guilt. Because it has been washed away in the blood of Jesus. I can stand at the bar of justice in the court of heaven. And over my condemnation is written, forgiven the debt is paid. And I am fully justified before a holy God because of Jesus. And then listen. And whom he justified, he also glorified. He has not only justified us, but he has brought us into the participation of his earthly glory. I want to say it again because I'm amazed at what people hear sometimes. We will never share the glory of God. God is unique. He is wholly other. We will never share the glory of God. But we will share the glory of the resurrected Jesus. Fully human in all respects. And when we spend eternity with Him, we will do so in resurrected glory with Him, Jesus the man. He will never for one heartbeat cease to be Christ the God. But we are not destined to be like God. That was the temptation that Satan offered. For he knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. No, we are never destined to be like God. But what we are destined to be is fully human as we were designed to be. In all of the splendor and majesty of God's crowning creation, we are at the pinnacle who bear His likeness and share His fellowship and have certain attributes in common with Him, though not to the same extent. And we need to be very clear about that, or we're going to go off into heresy. We are not destined for the throne in the sense of becoming like God. But we are destined to glory in becoming like the resurrected Christ. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, And this hope we have in Him, this blessed hope, For we know that when we shall see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. He's talking about the resurrected Jesus.
So whom he justified, he also glorified. And then finally, if I can just direct your attention for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 and following. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin. I told you I would come back to this, and I, and I want to focus on this in conclusion. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He shed His blood for our forgiveness. And when He had paid the price of that atonement, that, that satisfactory payment for our sin, He cried, it is finished. But had he not come out of the grave, that would have been just so much talk from a dying man. It would have been useless and worthless. Having no meaning or no validity. You can say anything when you're dying. And it may or may not mean a thing. Remember when they brought the paralytic to Jesus? And Jesus looked at this man who was lying at his feet and he said, My son, your sins are forgiven you. And all the Pharisees went, <gasps> Who does he think he is? That he would dare forgive sin? Only God can do that. He's blaspheming. And Jesus said, well, just in case you're wondering, let me give you some proof. Rise up and walk. And he got up and walked. The proof was in the action. The proof on the cross was in the resurrection. If Jesus had stayed in the grave... Our faith would be worthless and we would still be in our sin. Those who have died in Jesus will have perished. And if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep, there's that phrase again. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. 
but God gives it a body. Just uh, to each of the seeds, a body of its own. And in verse 42, Paul writes this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. We are destined to resurrection in power and in glory. This very moment we abide in Jesus Christ and we experience a bit of His glory. And there will come a future day when we will come out of the grave in resurrected power and glory. And we will be clothed with the garments of eternity. And we will live forever in His holy presence because He is a living Savior. And He has made provision for us to experience not only His glory as men and women who have been transformed by the power of God, but we shall dwell in the presence of the glory of God and enjoy His presence forever. Have you ever thought about glory? We have a certain glory this morning in the resurrection and a wonderful anticipation of a future and we are destined to become like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And friend, if you're here this morning without that blessed hope, I want to encourage you right where you sit. Even as we sing this last hymn, I want to encourage you that if you simply acknowledge Jesus Christ as the one who paid the price for your sin and receive Him as Lord and Savior, He will draw you into His heart and into His resurrected glory. And He will forgive you and cleanse you and make you whole and give you assurance of life eternal. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. That's the greatest hope that we have.